Well, it is my honor to, this feels weird, doesn't it, by the way, not dismissing kids right now. It's like you should have a gap of time where kids are running out there. Uh, it's my honor to introduce a good friend of mine, Matt. I uh, met you, I guess, September of last year when you came in, and man, this, this guy's the real deal. He loves Jesus. Uh, I am so inspired by just your authentic faith, and I'd love to pray for you as you get started. Is that okay? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Father, um, thank you for nights like tonight. We're so thankful for the word that you prepared. I mean, I'm just excited to hear what you have to share through Matt. Pray that you'll just kind of move him out of the way and just be the one who, who speaks tonight. Pray that you'll speak clearly to us through this message. Love you very much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All you, Thanks. brother. <laughs> uh, good evening. My name is Matt, my wife, Crystal, and uh, we've got four teenagers uh, who've been here. This has probably been, this is our first Christmas officially at GMC. I know Dallas counts by Christmases, so we're, I guess we're one Christmas old at GMC. Uh, I've been looking for someone, hoping he's here tonight, but I I don't see him, but I think he can handle it, so I'm going to do it anyway. If you've been with us for a while here on Wednesday nights, uh, there's been a series through Romans, and if you've heard, like I have, just this constant groaning and kind of the heaviness and burdensomeness that Walter has gone through to try and package, you know, three chapters into one night, and he wrestles over that struggle, well, for me, Dallas has been kind and generous enough to give me seven chapters to go through in one night. So Walter, you had it easy, man. And instead of trying to plow through all seven chapters, we're just going to start from Genesis 1 and go through to Revelation. No, I'm joking. I'm going to choose two verses. I'm going to give us two verses because I believe that that's the, the turning point in the book of Romans. And he kind of sets up the rest of what he shares in the book from that position. Now, if you know a a famous uh, pastor, John Piper, he took eight years to preach through the book of Romans. And he devoted four sermons to these two verses. So still, it's going to be deep and quick, but there's so much good stuff in this passage. So I won't be able to finish it, obviously. You can never kind of complete your understanding of any portion of Scripture, but uh, I'll do my best. So Romans is a letter, one letter by one man to one church. It's very personal. We look at it as this grand theological uh, treaty of the gospel, and it is, but it's also very specific and very relational. Because this man had a love and a burden for the people, the church, a young church that was often persecuted and had a variety of issues and struggles that they were wrestling with as they were also growing as believers. So Paul speaks this to them in their place to encourage, to challenge, to motivate, and to call them to be who they were meant to be as followers of Jesus. 
And so from chapters 1 to 11, we'll just do a real quick synopsis. Chapters 1 to 11, he describes God lovingly pursuing his people to be redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's basically it. You got to remember, you got to hold on to this truth of who God is and what he's done. He's lovingly pursued us to, to make us a people, his people, to be redeemed, to be saved, to be delivered, to be a part of his family, to belong to him by grace. His grace and his love provided a way. That way was Jesus. And now we come to him through faith in that way, Jesus Christ. It's a masterpiece. And in chapter 12, he shifts. And he's like, so now what? If this is true, and it is, and we believe it because he was speaking to the church, so he knew they had held on to that confession of faith. They were with him. And he's like, so now what? What does that change? How does Jesus change my life, your life, our lives? And he then lists all these very practical, very specific things, and I'm just going to plow through them. You need to get to number three. We're on number three. You're behind me. Let's go. (laughs) How does Jesus change my life? Self-esteem. He talks about self-esteem. He addresses gifts and talents, friendships, integrity, forgiving people, respecting leadership, paying taxes, relational advice, lifestyle decisions, eating properly, giving to those who are in need, and even just personal greetings to the believers in Rome. Like It's so real. These issues that he's addressing as followers of Jesus. And, and the truth of chapters 1 through 11 should impact these real daily experiences in our lives. And so he moves from theology to praxis. Or from knowing what is true to doing what is true. From, from thinking and believing in Jesus to living our lives for him. And that's where we see the transition in Romans 12.1. And if you can turn there with me, we'll read the first verse. Romans 12 is that, that shift to describe what does it mean for me and my life. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The first word, therefore, means all that he's going to say has been built on what's before it. And I, I think Paul must have gone into this just expression in chapter 11. Let me, let me read it. You don't have to, to read it or follow along. But after describing the, the beauty of the gospel, he just bursts out, I think, in a song. He's like, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. His judgments are unfathomable. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things For the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. Like I I hear that. Maybe we need to write a song, Brian. That should be maybe one of our first songs to compose as Grace Meadows Church. This, this, This response to the beauty of the gospel. He's like, wow, it's incredible. It's beyond our our wildest imagination. 
So it's from him and through him and to him. May the glory be his forever. And then he, he makes this transition. Therefore, let's, let's live our lives. Let's be, let's be a living sacrifice. Now, that word sacrifice, I think, has become a little bit outdated or antiquated in our culture today. But to the people he was uh, writing to, sacrificial rituals were a very common thing. Both in the pagan and the Jewish cultures. And sometimes those got all mixed up, right? If you read the Old Testament, human sacrifices, animal sacrifices... It was, a, it was a daily experience, really. But there was one specific day called the Day of Atonement was, was very important to the Jewish nation. And that was the day where they would bring a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies to take the blood from that animal and put it on the altar to cover the sins of the nation for one year. Again and again and again. Now, this sacrifice was, they were dead. They were dead sacrifices. They were insufficient sacrifices. And they were honestly unpleasant. I don't know if you've ever had the, uh, the responsibility to slaughter an animal. It's messy. It's painful. It's difficult. And you kind of feel bad. <laughs> Lifeless, limp, bloody, flawed, imperfect, Repeated over and over again, painful, grotesque. This was the type of sacrifice that was made regularly. But what I want to point out here is when you look at this verse, it's totally different. It's a living sacrifice. But I think there's a reason why there had to be blood shed. And I, I don't know if I can communicate exactly God's intent or how. I don't know. Maybe that's a question we'll have to ask him when we get there. But one thing is true is that blood has a supreme value to God. And there are three scriptures that kind of bring that out. And I'll start from Hebrews going backwards. And just a little teaser, I love Hebrews. And there's going to be a Hebrew series next year sometime, and I'm looking forward to that on Wednesday nights. Hebrews 9.22 says this, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Then you go back further and you see in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And when you go back even further, and here's where you get to a really interesting dynamic. Why? Why blood? Why sacrifice? Well, I think it comes to this point In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. This is just after humans failed miserably. Rebelled against God. Rejected God. Questions God's character. And God met them in their place of shame and guilt. In their nakedness. Remember what they tried to do? They tried to cover. They tried to hide. They tried to do anything. They they knew something was wrong. They had broken something. 
And God in his mercy and grace provides garments of skin to cover the nakedness of his image bearers, his prized possession, his most special creation. Where did he get those skins from? Isn't it interesting that God was the first person, the first being to kill? And he took an innocent animal and shed its blood so that he could take the skins and cover over the shame, the nakedness, the guilt of Adam and Eve so that they could then be, well, they could survive another year. So God established it in the beginning. I don't know why, but he did, so it is. And there's a clip. If you know the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a fantastic uh, book and movie series now. And there's a clip I want us to show, and I'm going to set it up. Lewis creates this story of a world that illustrates the truth of the gospel in a, in a fantastic way through fantasy literature. There are four siblings who magically find themselves in this new world. It's called Narnia. One of those betrays the other three to the white witch, who's the depiction of evil in this story. And she comes to Aslan, who's the picture of God, the the supreme being of the land, and, and comes to claim what she deserves. So let's show it. His offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Try and take him then. Do you really think that mere force will deny me my right? Little king. Aslan knows that unless I have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die on the stone table. As is tradition. You dare not refuse me. Enough. I shall talk with you alone.
She has renounced her claim on the son of Adam's blood. to keep watching the next part so good right but do you see that illustration there that that there's this way that the world has been built that demands blood for rebellion the good thing is the good news right we know that Jesus is the one who shed his blood So that we, the traitor, the claim that was on our life would be recanted and renounced. Praise God. And that's what Romans 1 through 11 is describing. You're free. And so his use of the word here, sacrifices, is very interesting. And there's three descriptive words. He talks about this sacrifice being worship. It's living, it's breathing, it's moving, it's pumping, it's active, it's a verb. It's a living sacrifice. It's not dead. It's not like the old way of sacrificial rituals. Our sacrifice is holy. It's pure, it's unblemished, it's innocent. We're set apart. Because of the work of Jesus, we now can offer holy sacrifices. Our lives are holy. It doesn't say, as some, I think some translations don't quite get right. It doesn't say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The Greek actually says, present your bodies, sacrifice, living, holy, acceptable. Boom, 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 boom. He doesn't mince words or make it flow. He says, your, your body is a sacrifice, living, wholly acceptable to God. I love that. It's not we're trying to make them holy. We're not trying to make them alive. We're not trying to make them acceptable. They just are because of what God has done. We are living. We are holy. We are acceptable to God. Hallelujah. All right. That's just how it is. We are. It's not as it is. It's not a metaphor. It's a reality. And so, because of that truth, our lives should be different. And that's the second verse. We're halfway through. I've got time. We're doing all right. Romans 12, 2. Read it with me. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this truth that our lives we can present to God, and it's interesting enough, our bodies, plural, are a living sacrifice singular to God. Our bodies, plural, are a living sacrifice singular 
to God. Therefore, do not conform to the way of this world any longer. Because you're not a part of it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word, conformed. Well, let's start with transformed. Being transformed is this idea in Greek of metamorphosis. Changing form. It's the same Greek word. It's very rare in the New Testament. It's used here in Romans and in Matthew and the Gospels describing the transfiguration of Jesus. So when Jesus was on the mountains with his three disciples, something magical happened, supernatural. Elijah came down, Moses came down, these old dudes who had been dead for centuries on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus becomes this supernatural figure before those three disciples. It must have knocked their socks off, right? Just blew them away. That's the same Greek word that Paul is using here. You are being transformed. And it's a present imperative verb, which means it's an active process. It's more, it should be more translated. And be conforming. Not be conformed. Uh, it doesn't stop once. It, it, it's a regular thing that happens to us every day. Be in the process of being transformed. Just like Jesus was transfigured, changed form before the disciples on the mountain, so should we also be changing form every day. I love this illustration of a caterpillar and a butterfly. Because they're such different creatures, but they're still the, the one, uh, you know, the one thing. But they're not. The caterpillar starts as a pupa, right? And grows and eats and eats and eats and gets really fat. And when it's time, it builds its own cocoon or little cave. Hides in there. And then a process happens. Metamorphosis where the actual cells of the caterpillar break down. It kind of destroys itself so that it can be built back up again into something incredible, even greater than it was before. Unless you really love caterpillars. You know, there may be some people out there that they prefer a caterpillar to a butterfly. But for me, I prefer the butterfly. So that's the way we're going with this illustration. And then it gives it wings to fly and to, to travel and, and to multiply. And that's the job of the butterfly. It's, it's not bound any longer to the dirt and the soil and the struggle for life and getting eaten by your chickens. You know, it's, it's, it's free. It can fly. It can move. It travels in the wind. It's just going for it. And its main job is to multiply. Some butterflies don't even eat for the, the weeks that they're alive. They're just solely focused. i got to multiply, multiply. Isn't that a picture? Shouldn't that be a picture of us as believers? Being transformed that we're no longer a part of this world. Stop conforming to this world. You're not a caterpillar anymore. Jesus made you a butterfly. Stop trying to live like a caterpillar. You aren't one. 
How crazy would it be to see a butterfly trying to go back to the caterpillar lifestyle? Like, what's wrong with that butterfly? Doesn't it know it's not a caterpillar anymore? So be transformed. Be in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, renewing your mind. That word renewing means to remodel. I love that because that's my job. I remodel bathrooms. Oh, that's my main thing. I do many other things, but I love bathrooms. So in order to remodel or renovate something, you've got to destroy it first. You tear it apart. You de- demo it. And then you see, you have this, this vision of what it could be. And you start piecing it back together. I'm doing this in my own house. We had an, a huge hole in our master bathroom for months because of problems, you know, water, destruction, And now we're building it back up to make it beautiful. Same thing that we can do as followers of Jesus. We have this renewing, remodeling going on in our minds that we are becoming more and more like who we were meant to be. A butterfly. And in the sacrificial death of Christ, when we're buried with him in that cocoon, we're then raised to a new life and reborn As a new creation. So stop being conformed to the world. I know it's easier said than done, right? Because there are forces against us. There are conforming forces that oppose who we are meant to be as followers of Jesus. There's three I want to mention. Three categories maybe. I know there's tons of ways and things we all struggle with if we're honest. That hold us back from being who we're meant to be as followers of Jesus. The first is self. Ourselves. And Paul describes this as the flesh or the old self, the old nature, the caterpillar. We're ashamed of who we are or what we've done. We're ashamed of our standing or our failures. And that holds us back from from recognizing that we no longer have a position in the world. And when I say world, I mean not just the physical earth. I mean this, this age, this era of sin, darkness, rebellion, evil. The second is Satan. We have an enemy. So the first is ourself. We cause ourselves, we oppose ourselves from, from being who God has made us to be. The second is Satan who accuses us of our inadequacies. Don't you remember what you've done? You know, Satan may not have as much power as we give him or as we think we give him credit for. His main target is lies. That's his method to accuse us, to attack us, to deceive us. I I told the youth on Sunday, I think it was this last week, made an illustration, maybe it was the week before, that there's this certificate of debt that we had hanging over us. Because of our sin and failure. 
And God took that certificate and washed it in the blood. Then he took it and nailed it on the cross. No one can see. No one can identify what that stands for any longer. And it says in Colossians chapter, oh boy, two? Yeah, it's two. That he put those authorities and powers to shame because there was no record any longer of our guilt. And the third thing that often comes to oppose us is society itself, those around us. And it's so easy for us to compare ourselves to others and Oh, I wasn't as, you know, as good as my brother or my sister always got straight A's or my parents were missionaries or the list goes on and on. They're more successful. I have anxiety. I'm always the one getting sick. It's so easy to compare ourselves to others and start to denigrate who we are instead of living out the new life that God has given us. When we look at all those things that Paul addressed in the next few chapters, self-esteem, spiritual gifts, friendships, integrity, relational advice, eating healthily, properly, giving to those in need, all those things, I don't want us to look at them as a list of to-dos that we often will struggle to accomplish. My goal is that we'll see them as an outpouring of our new life, of just who we are. That being a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God is a response to what has already been done to set us free and make us new. So the encouragement I have is don't struggle. Don't struggle to act like a butterfly. Just be one. And don't settle for the life of a caterpillar because you aren't one. Just be you. You're a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. So I want to close with this. I want to ask us to respond in three ways. I think we can all reflect on our lives and consider ways we've gone back to being a caterpillar. We've gone back to our old nature. We've allowed ourself, our sinful nature, or Satan's attacks and accusations, or society's comparison to confuse us, to mislead us, to distract us from who we really are. My encouragement is for us to return. Just return from those dead ways. Return back. 
Repent. Come back to the Father and recognize your position is already secure. You already are a new creation. The second thing is to renew our mind. Go through a remodeling process. Are there things you need to remove? Are there things you need to rebuild? Refresh your mind so that you will live daily. Remind yourself that I'm a living sacrifice. I'm holy. I'm, I'm, I'm acceptable to God. That's who I am. I'm a butterfly. And the third thing is read Romans 12 and 13. Just those two chapters. But don't read them. Let them read you. Really look at an evaluation of your lifestyle. Is this who you are? Because that's what a butterfly is. So let's be it. Let's pray. We're going to sing a song called Build My Life. And if you want to come up in front to process something before the Lord or have someone pray for you, please feel free to do that. And I don't want it just to end tonight in a message. I want you to carry it with you this week and live it out. In what ways can I be a butterfly for Jesus? In what ways does Romans 12 and 13 call me to be that new creation, the expectation that's just who I am? And that our lives this week and for the weeks onward will be a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. Because the blood was already shed, it's been paid. Jesus was worthy. Worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So Lord, lead us. Holy Spirit, move in us. Draw us to know you more, to love you more, to worship you more, and to live our lives out of who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.